Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay. So, so I suppose we never we never say who our theme music is by. Who is our theme music by? Uh, well, it's from premiumbeat.com, and uh, I could look up the name of the uh, composer uh, for you. We paid 50 bucks. Yes, we yes. spent some money. We got some music. <laughs> yes, we, we, we paid a little bit of money, and now we can use it legally, and we're not going to get dings for that. Alex Kizenkov. Okay, our composer is Alex Kizenkov. Which we're probably mispronouncing. <laughs> yes. Who knows? All right. So, um, yeah, so, this month, we have a bunch of stuff. We got a bunch of stuff coming up. We are going <laughs> to go ahead and do a perfectly normal episode today. I think we might be able to make it through seven issues today, which was more than we've ever done. But these are not major issues, and except for one of them, and I think we can make it through them. That's very possible. We will see. So we still be making all these misstatements. You know, We're always saying, oh, this is the last time this, this is the first time that. And we're going to get to a number of those again this week. But uh, one thing I did want to point out is that last week, or last episode, I should say, when we were talking about the issue of Thor, at one point you were saying, oh, that's right, we usually read the cover and we didn't this time. And I'm like, yeah, just keep going. Let's not worry about it. And I realized that that meant that we missed our very first corner box. Yes. That issue of Thor from last episode was the first issue that had the long-running Marvel mainstay of the little upper left-hand corner having some kind of a, you know, shot of the hero, a close-up, an action shot, something like that, uh, that was up there in the corner box that was uh, something that really was emblematic of Marvel Comics for the next few decades after this but uh this past issue of thor was the first one that did it brian cronin was just talking about this though and comics should be good and he was saying that it was ditko's idea for spider-man number two that ditko had the idea of adding one to spider-man number two and then stanley insulin was like all the other books should have one so ditko must have been running a little ahead far enough ahead where the previous month's thor was able to have one so according to brian cronin it was all ditko's idea for spider-man number two which is going to be the first comic we talk about tonight I have definitely heard that before. Now, who knows? It may have been from Brian Cronin, you know, indirectly or something for all I know. But uh, I have definitely heard that as well. Honestly, if you ask my opinion, I think that these amazing Spider-Man stories had uh, from issues one and two had all been done previously with the thought that they were going to be appearing in upcoming issues of Amazing Fantasy. Uh, And that's why they're just half length stories, you know, for each issue. Um, I mean, that's that that is utterly speculation on my point i have no background information on that of any sort i'm just saying looking at the way that they're paced out and looking at the way they are here i suspect that's what was going on ha i guess that is entirely possible each of these issues is made up of two very distinct stories so that is that is entirely possible so i guess we've gotten started here we're going ahead and we're going to try to do seven issues this month we're going to start with an excellent issue spider-man number two amazing spider-man number two he was off last month his book is bi-monthly for the time being although it is a book that stan is putting his whole self into he is not having larry lieber or robert bernstein script this book he is starting him off with a bam with a full-length series after a brief half-issue tryout in a 
Amazing Fantasy number 15. And he has one of his best artists, one might even say Potter artist, working on the book, <laughs> Steve Dicko. It's a gorgeous issue. And um, once again, for those of you who are more familiar with the uh, Marvel movies, both of the villains that are introduced in this book were villains in Spider-Man Homecoming. So wait, The Tinkerer was in Spider-Man Homecoming? I'm pretty sure he was, wasn't he? He was that actor that I know is like the the brother from Orange is the New Black. But yeah, he was just he essentially he was just one of the guys working in Toombs's uh, outfit. He was tinkering with stuff a lot. And I'm pretty sure they use the character's name that they've established for him at some point. Uh, so I'm but, pre- I'm pretty sure he was in there. But he was not an alien. No, no, no. He was not an alien. He was just a, a tinkerer. Just a tinkerer. A puny, mortal, human tinkerer. Okay, so this is Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man number two. Let's quickly sum it up. We're going to have to start summing these issues up quicker if we're going to be doing more every month. Amazing Spider-Man number two, it says, Two great new Spider-Man thrillers, two great new supervillains featuring the Vulture, and Spider-Man is trapped by the terrible tinkerer. And we have a big picture of him fighting the Vulture, who is just has an amazing look to him. There's just no <laughs> other supervillain that looks anything like the Vulture with his withered old man <laughs> looks. Yes. And then and then you just see a brief glimpse of a sci-fi gun being pointed by the tinkerer. So we begin with the vulture stealing a briefcase with a fortune in bonds. J. Jonah Jameson not working at the Daily Bugle. J. Jonah Jameson working at Now Magazine, which is part of J. Jonah Jameson Publishing. But they don't mention the Daily Bugle in this issue. They just mention Now Magazine. J. Jonah Jameson is saying he wants pictures of the vulture. We then cut to... Peter Parker, and I got to say, Steve Ditko, you've got to be a bit more imaginative in where you show Peter in his high school, because every single time you show Peter in his high school, he is in science class. It is the exact same shot, shot from the exact same angle. He has got a flask in one hand, and he's writing notes with the other hand, and then Flash Thompson and Liz Allen and everybody else are standing around behind him, heckling him in exactly the same position. But so they're reading Now Magazine about how much James and Jameson wants photos. Peter Parker is like, wait a second. He has Aunt May for her old camera. He decides to go ahead and start selling photos to Jameson. But first, he's got to take some photos. Then there's a bit of a contrivance here where he's just lucky enough to have the vulture fly by when he's out with the camera. He thinks, what luck? It's the vulture. He then sees the vulture throw rocks with messages through J. Jonah Jameson's window, through the police window, through a radio station window. Each of these messages say, I shall steal the diamond shipment from under your nose. Spider-Man then tries to beat up the vulture. Well, first he tries to take a picture and he says, there, I've got everything adjusted perfectly. Now to, hey, where did he go? The vulture swings up behind him, (laughs) kicks him in the head, knocks him out, dumps him inside a water tower to kill him and flies away. Spider-Man, thankfully, is not killed in the water tower, figures out how to jump out of there, gets out. But this is what we call in my, I guess I've never said this in, I didn't say this in either of my books, but on my blog, this is what I call the inconsequential confrontation, where you've got two people who want to stop Mm -hmm. each other, but they end up having some sort of inconsequential confrontation where they don't actually stop each other. And and let me point out that when Spidey was dumped into the water tower, he wasn't able to use his webs to get out because he'd run out of web fluid, which uh, becomes important because he then goes back and invents his little spider utility belt that has all of his spare web fluid cartridges that are in it. So that is then a mainstay for years and years afterwards. And then he attaches the camera also to the belt buckle so he can take photographs with that. And then he 
creates another device for fight for fighting the vulture. We then see Peter Parker sell photos to Jameson for the first time, and he. And this Jameson is not as much of a jerk about it as he usually is, and he pays him a lot better than he will later pay him. We cut to Peter Parker and Flash Thompson and Liz Allen, who is still not named, going to watch and see if the Vulture will get away with this robbery that he's taunted everyone that he'll be able to pull off. Everybody is watching the skies, but then the Vulture comes up through a manhole cover, and we get an absolutely gorgeous panel on page 10 of the Vulture flying through the sewers with yes. Zico loves to draw pipes that are leaking water into bigger pools of water. And, uh, by the way, uh, you, you were saying you were saying that that was Flash Thompson earlier in the issue. He was referred to as Moose, Moose. which is weird. It, yes, in the following story, in the Tinkerer story, he's going to be called Flash Thompson. But uh, earlier in this issue, uh, the uh, Peter refers to him as Moose. Now, I don't know if that's just some kind of insulting nickname he's come up with for Flash, but I get the feeling that they just hadn't quite fit, you know, figured out the jock nickname yet on that. So, and yeah. Flash <laughs> anyway. is Flash is presumably also a nickname. So it would be weird that he would have the nicknames both Flash yeah. and Moose, which are not very compatible nicknames. But yes. <laughs> You're right. He, he says back here on page three, he says, very funny, Moose, at least my brain isn't muscle-bound like that fat head of yours. So then, meanwhile, a very cool uh, sequence where the vulture comes up through the manhole cover. He then t- flies through the subway tunnels and then flies out of a subway entrance and takes off. Spider-Man goes to fight him. Spider-Man then has invented this thing to cancel the vulture's magnetism because, of course, it's all magnets. Stanley loves magnets. And the yes. vulture is arrested. And Spider Man gets pictures of him being arrested. He says, If they had asked me, I could have told them. The absence of noise gave me the clue. I suspected that he had discovered a way to harness magnetic power. That's why my gadget made him fall. It's an anti magnetic inverter. And it worked. So then he sells more pictures to Jameson. He then gets paid. He gets paid an absolute ton of money by Jameson. He says, Aunt May, this money means you're not going to have to worry about anything again. I paid the rent for a full year, and tomorrow I'm buying you the newest kitchen appliances you ever drooled over. And she says, oh, Peter, I'm so proud of you. It's just like your Uncle Ben always said. You're the most wonderful boy in the world. So if you were saying a Spider-Man story is one in which Spider-Man wins and Peter Parker loses, that is not the case here. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Everything comes out rosy for old Peter Parker in this issue but well in the first half of this issue but we will and then it cuts to the vulture in prison so that is the end of part one we will then briefly the vulture in prison still in his full costume with his wings (laughs) and everything else in his cell as usually happens in the marvel universe uh you know all all super villains are incarcerated with all of their costume and equipment so then we cut to the second story, the uncanny threat of the terrible tinkerer. Spider-Man is, I don't want to shock you, but Peter Parker is once again in science class with a flask in his hand. <laughs> and once again, with standing directly over his right shoulder, as they always are, Flash Thompson and Liz Allen. And then somebody comes to class and says, I'm looking to hire someone to be in my tinker shop. And of course, they hire Peter because he's the best science student. Peter goes to this tinkerer shop where this 
he's going to help them repair radios. It turns out they'll repair any radio for 10 cents, which is a really good deal. Well, it turns out it's because the tinkerer is actually an alien and they are installing things into these radios. <laughs> Spider-Man doesn't take long to figure out what's going on. The next time he's there, he looks inside one of the radios and he says, hey, no ordinary radio head catches like that inside of it. That's where the impulses are coming from, even with the set off. That does it. Now I'm through kidding around. Now Spider-Man's going to take another look-see at the tinkerer's shop. So Spider-Man goes and he investigates and he discovers a whole bunch of aliens in the basement of the tinkerer's shop. And he fights them. They lock him up for a while, but then he manages to get out in a clever way. And he fights them until there's a big fire started. And then, as happens so many times in the Marvel Universe, the aliens quickly decide this is too much trouble. It's not worth it. They say, it is done. We can never again return to Earth. They will be on guard from this day on. And uh, Spider-Man speaks to the guy who hired him, who says, I thought I saw an alien ship take off, but people will think I'm a typical absent-minded professor. Forget it, Peter. Let's get back to work. And then Peter picks up the discarded rubber mask of the tinkerer and thinks about how he's an alien. The end. So the first half of this issue, awesome. The vulture is awesome. Dealing with Jameson is awesome. The second half of this issue is sort of a warning sign that, like, no, Spider-Man, don't play that. <laughs> this whole idea of these constant one-off alien invasions that then decide to give up on conquering Earth, that can fly in Thor, that can fly in Iron Man, that can fly in all these other books. It's not really going to fly in Spider-Man. And I here's one of those things where we know not to do it. We know we shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it. I think this is pretty much the last time Spider-Man ever fights aliens. Well, I, I that that sounds like a bold statement there, Cotton. Um. Well, the, the first time in I think this is the last last time in the Ditko issues. Well, Spider-Man will eventually fight okay. these aliens okay. again much later in the Roger Stern Spectacular Spider-Man issues. But uh. Spider-Man will fight various aliens again. But I think this is the last time in a Lee Ditko issue that Spider-Man fights aliens and it is it's stanley on autopilot and mm -hmm. it's saying okay you know second issue gonna fight some alien men gonna fight you know green bug-eyed alien menace and then i think maybe ditko put his foot down or maybe it was the other way around and said mm -hmm. nope we're not going to do that anymore in this book this is we're going to have more neat cool visually fascinating villains like the vulture and no more bug-eyed aliens Yes, and I think that that was a um, I think that was a good realization that they seem to have, and I'm glad that they stuck with it. I mean, yeah, when I was saying that, like you know, it's a bold statement saying that he never fought aliens again. I was thinking, you know, well, we, you know, he, I know he's fought Fire Lord, and you know, I'm sure he's fought some scrolls at some point. But yes, I, I know what you mean. Is and this is the last time that the, the this is the only time, as far as I can remember, that yeah, he did one of these sort of generic, as you said, Stanley on autopilot. Um, um, alien invasion stories. Yes. So, well, and of course, he will eventually fight his own alien costume quite a bit. But uh, well, that, right. is, that is much later. Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, as you said, first half of the issue, great. Second half of the issue, eh. And, uh, but, you know, we, we have some good stuff in here. Um, developing his relationship with J. Jonah Jameson, his career, uh, his, some of his equipment that he's going to have going forward, the fact that he's going to be using science from time to time to help, uh, help him in his, uh, battles. And so, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of, uh, setup work for, uh, the years ahead. Yeah, but they sort of set it up too much. It's like they're like they're they're taking care of his problems a little much. Obviously, every time yes. he works working for Jameson is obviously a great 
driver for the stories, but they can't have him get paid so much every time that he could pay off the, a year's rent. So they will quickly realize like, oh, yeah, Jameson's kind of a jerk. He should probably refuse to pay Peter a living wage, which yes. uh, makes for makes for much better continuing story going forward to have him constantly have to be working for Jameson because he's not getting paid very well. And and one th- and you know we, we need to move on to Fantastic Four here, but I'm just going to say that uh, one thing that I have heard speculated upon is that when Steve Ditko was doing the pacing out of the stories and everything, that he was picturing Stan Lee whenever he was doing J. Jonah Jameson. And that Stan Lee was picturing Martin Goodman when he was scripting J. Jonah Jameson. Um, so <laughs> Lord, only, Lord only knows if that's true, but I love thinking of it that way, that each one of them is like, you know, I'm sticking it to Lee and making him script his own thing. And Lee, meanwhile, is like, yeah, I'm sticking it to my uncle. <laughs> you know? Not even not even getting right. the whole thing. All right. So uh, I guess are we doing Fantastic Four next? Let's do Fantastic Four number 14. I guess we're, we're rehashing both Submariner and Puppet Master. Uh, this is what? Submariner's at least third appearance, right? Maybe fourth? Fourth, um, I think. He was in number four, number six, number nine, and now number 14. So uh, he is back, and this time he is being controlled by the Puppet Master. On the cover, we just have a confrontation. Submariner says, at last we meet again, but this time on my terms. Uh, although it's actually not on his terms at all, as we will find <laughs> at out. All. So then there's a uh, caption here that says, how much action, how much drama do you crave? Be on hand when the Submariner strikes. And you see a back shot of uh, the Submariner with uh, Sue tied up behind him. And of course. Uh, in the distance, yes. Uh, and in the distance, well, and actually the, the perspective on that just makes no sense. It looks like Namor is a towering giant figure, but then that's not uncommon for comics in these days. Uh, and then you see the rest of the Fantastic Four coming through a door in the distance. It says, Undersea Monarch versus America's Greatest Superheroes, plus the surprise return of another former villain. We pick up exactly where we left off in the last issue. They are flying back from the moon. Uh, so that's, that's a nice little continuity bit that is going to be more and more common in Marvel Comics going forward and really was not a common thing in comics at the time. It's like, oh, yes, we pick up where our last story left off. Here's the next thing that's coming. So they're coming back. Johnny is, of course, still flaming on in the rocket as they're landing because... Of course he is. Um, That seems like a really uh, safe and uh, efficient choice. So then they're landing and they're realizing, oh, my God, we're going to be the first people to ever go to the moon and come back. This is going to be a huge media event. And indeed, it turns out that it is just a media circus down there waiting to meet them when they get out. And so then there's a whole big scrum and they are trying to get safely through. There is a really funny sequence where there are two separate competing Mr. Fantastic fan clubs that are all women and they're fighting over him. They're like pulling his stretchy body apart, trying to grab a piece of him for themselves. Uh, there's meanwhile some kind of promoter who's trying to have something about their his wrestler fight the thing. Thing just walks up and puts him in the trash can. Some producer 
producers are trying to make Sue sign a contract to be a an actress or a you know endorse some stuff. Uh, Johnny gets them out of there using a some kind of a heat tornado. They then are all exhausted, so they all fall asleep in the uh, Baxter Building when they get home. Uh, of course, Johnny is still aflame. Sue says <laughs> she's get says hmm. I think I'd better do a little house cleaning. And Reed says, just so long as you do it silently. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. So this is that Reed that we're getting this time. What does she do? She instantly runs downstairs to try to find Namor on her little <laughs> spy thing. I yes. can't imagine what is driving her into the arms of Namor right now. <laughs> it's a very good point. And she's using one of Reed's gadgets to track down Namor. Like, you know, she's like, I'm going to use this little spy gadget that he has. And I'm going to spy on my boyfriend. So and, um, and great, great art from Kirby showing when he walks in on her searching the C4 for Namor with his experimental roving eye TV apparatus. She then whirls around <laughs> as if she has been caught doing something very bad. And she says, oh, Reed, you you startled me. And Reed says she blanked it out in her arm. And I'm sure I know why. Yeah, and there's static on the screen behind her. And yeah, just the look on her face is just like really concerned. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. So then uh, Reed goes off and sort of has his little soliloquy about how, you know, uh, his, his issues with, you know, how powerful he is, and yet he can't win her heart entirely. She, meanwhile, is thinking the same sort of thing about, you know, uh, what can I decide? So then we have a little aside where we see the puppet master, um, you know, is still alive, and he is dreaming of revenge. He has made himself a mind control puppet of Submariner. So then we cut to Submariner, who is underwater, and he is still looking for the, his lost people, but then he is taken control of by the Puppet Master. Submariner then goes back to his lair where he has some sort of the wondrous Mento fish, which can sense human thoughts and transmit them to any point on Earth through mental electro waves. So then Namor uses the powers of this fish to summon Sue to him. And uh, so she sneaks out and comes and joins him on the end of this pier. But she is not – he is not in any way using mind control on her yet. She is just instantly, as soon as he contacts her, she's like, oh, it's him. It's Namor at last. I've got to go to him. He needs me. And Sue is like, oh, OK. Well, you know, Reed's being a total jerk here. So, you know, let me go check out and see what bare-chested Namor has to do uh, with me here. And But uh, then <laughs> there's so much – different forms of mind control in this issue. So first we have the puppet master with his mind control clay. Then you have Namor with his mento fish. And then as soon as Sue arrives on the dock, then he checks out the hypno fish, which is a different type of fish, a flying fish with a giant eye that hypnotizes Sue. So now she is under a different sort of mind control than Namor himself is under at this point due to the puppet master. So did you do any research on the uh, the hypno fish in uh, Wikipedia, the, the real life hypno no fish? No. <laughs> of course not. It's not a thing. I, I just. <laughs> All right. You, I got you. You totally, you totally had me. <laughs> so, wow. That's you're too easy, Matt. So, uh, anyway, we see uh, the puppet master making puppets for for Namor and for the entire Fantastic Four, and he will then pit them against each other. Meanwhile, back at the Fantastic Four, we end up getting an image of the Submariner 
beamed into the building. And apparently this is yet another fish, some kind of power that he has or something he's got in his lair. I don't know. And they're like, oh, yeah, don't you remember that? He's oh yeah, that's one of his powers through the use of an undersea image transmitter. Anyway, so uh, then he announces to them through this projecto vision that he has Sue and they check the place and realize, oh, my God, you're right. She's gone. So they go off to find her. Uh, meanwhile, it seems that the puppet master bought a small Navy surplus one-man sub. So apparently, if you go to those Army-Navy surplus stores, you can get a one-man sub in these things. Uh, and I had no idea, but um, I'm going to have to try that next time. So they are afraid that you know they're going to have to go off and fight Namor in his own lair under the sea where he's most powerful, they're actually thinking we might not make it back. So they have this one throwback once again to the whole thing about the police commissioner, right? So they're like, oh yeah, we better get our secret files to the police commissioner in case we don't make it back. (laughs) I don't know how many more times that's going to come up, but it still feels a little bit weird. Uh, Thing, meanwhile, is like, well, you know what? I'm going to go say goodbye to Alicia. Uh, because, you know, if I ever see her again, I don't want her to worry about me. So there's a nice funny sequence where he's uh, landing his bit of the fantastic car in a pay lot and the guy is charging him extra money because of the funny car. Then Thing decides to bring Alicia with him to go now, fight make, Puppet Master and Namor. It would make so much more sense if they had already figured out the Puppet Master was behind this and they were bringing Alicia along because they wanted her to confront her father. It makes no sense at all that this would happen to be the one mission they would invite Alicia to come along to. And then, oh, it turns out it's good because your father is involved. I really feel like this could have been plotted more deftly other than just having to go like, oh, well, we want Alicia there because her father's there, but they don't know that. So then they just randomly invite her along. Yeah, that's a good point. So anyway, we have a callback to that funny thing with the uh, parking garage where uh, Thing ends up stacking a whole bunch of cars up on top of each other. Although Stan does make sure in the following panel, make sure that Thing mentions that he put all the cars back where they were supposed to go, even though we don't see that happen. So he brings Alicia and everybody seems completely unsurprised to see him there. And uh, Thing, as a matter of fact, seems disappointed that he didn't have to argue with them about it. So they then uh, go down and they're looking for Samariner. They're being attacked by all this undersea stuff, this uh, giant undersea porcupine. Then there's this underwater tornado. Johnny, once again, somehow is able to burst into flame in the water by creating some kind of steam envelope, which in this case, it doesn't work very well, which makes a lot more sense than when it did work well in uh, last month. Uh, And um, so... Mr. Fantastic rescues him. They then get snapped up by a giant clam. And when they wake up, they are in Submariner's lair. So Sue is being held in a giant aquarium with this giant octopus holding her in this globe of air or something like that. The rest of them are going to fight uh, Submariner. He's got some kind of gizmo that sucks out Johnny's flame. He throws a bunch of stuff at Thing that is able to hurt him or stop him from moving. But then Reed is able to tangle him up and uh, basically catch him in a web of his own limbs. So they are fighting. Meanwhile, uh, Thing gets Sue free from the octopus thing, gets her out, 
And at this point, the puppet master is like, things are not going right. These people are supposed to be eliminating each other for me, and they're not doing that. And so I, I've got to up the ante. We've got to go ahead and make the Submariner kill the Fantastic Four. And he's resisting. He's he's like, no, I, I, I don't know why I have this. I, I've, I've got to resist. Resists the best he can, but uh, eventually is compelled to go ahead and release this poison. As it turns out, Reed, of course, had a gizmo ready to go to protect everybody. Sue reminds everyone at that point, where he wants to clobber him, that he was being controlled by someone else. That uh, octopus from earlier breaks out of the undersea lair and causes a huge flood to start coming in after it. But he, meanwhile, goes up and finds, of course, the sub that contains the Puppet Master. And the Puppet Master cannot control the octopus because the octopus has so little brain to be controlled. Of course, now we know that octopus is, like, one of the most uh, intelligent creatures in the sea. But, you know, that being said, for the purposes of this story, uh, it is basically a brainless behemoth and so cannot be controlled. So at yes. this point, uh, Samariner is saying, what are you people doing here? <laughs> like, OK, yeah, you've been mind controlled. All this stuff is going on. So then he says, after uh, making another overture towards Sue and Sue saying, Namor, as much as you fascinate me, my loyalties are still with Reed. As for my heart, perhaps one day it will be able to make a final choice but not yet. And Reed has a very interesting sort of side-eye look on his face <laughs> as she's saying this, like, I'm right here. Namor says, I shall not beg. I've got to go find my people. And, you know, uh, that that's what I need to go do. And they have a grudging respect that becomes clear at the end here. So as they're leaving, Sue says, goodbye, Namor. I pray that someday you will lose the bitterness from your heart and that you might become our friend. And he says, friend, that is too mild a word for the Submariner. Farewell for now. So, uh, you know, they they are building this up a little bit more, the whole love triangle between her and Reed and Namor. But one way or the other, Namor feels like he is in a better place for having had the Fantastic Four do whatever they did, even though he doesn't understand why, because he was being mind-controlled. So, yeah, it's uh, yes. a decent issue. It's not a momentous issue, but it is a decent issue. And there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, this is two familiar players for, you know, it's like, well, maybe we can get an issue out of combining two villains who haven't been combined before, so we can have the Puppet Master try to control Namor. But, you know, as opposed to, like, last issue, where you introduced... The Red Ghost and its Super Apes, and then suddenly the Watcher comes out of nowhere in the blue area of the moon, and last issue was just bursting, overflowing with imagination, and this issue is not overflowing with imagination. It is just combining two familiar elements in a slightly new way, and it is, it's a perfectly fine issue, but nowhere near as huge as some of the other issues we've had. Yeah. Shall we move right on to Journey into Mystery, starring the mighty Thor? Journey into Mystery number 92. Let's do it. So we once again have art, penciling, and inking by Joe Sinna. And this is plot by Stan Lee, script by R. Burns. Uh, and so, uh, once again, I should probably try to do some research on R. Burns. I mean, that clearly sounds to me like a... a yes, it just so happens that we don't have to because Brian Cornyn was talking about him this week. <laughs> R. Burns is apparently Robert Bernstein, who was a Superman writer. Oh. Uh, and as would whenever DC writers or artists would moonlight over at Marvel, they would always get these sort of, you know, thinly veiled monikers uh, to 
maintain some plausible deniability that they were working for both companies. So R. Burns is, believe it or not, a very clever uh, pseudonym for Robert Bernstein. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, you would think they might have just spelled it B-U-R-N-S just to make it a little bit different. But, you know, uh, what are you going to do? What you going to do? So this is Journey into Mystery number 92. On the cover, we have Loki bursting out of chains, Thor desperately reaching for his hammer. Loki says, I've done it. I've stolen Thor's hammer. Now the Thunder God is at my mercy, says the mighty Thor cannot reach his enchanted hammer. Is this to be Loki's final victory? Thor thinks, I cannot reach it. Within seconds, all my superpowers will be gone forever. So very quickly in the issue, good synod art as usual, penciling and inking. We begin with a moment that, again, Brian Cornyn has talked about, a, an important little moment where we have Heimdall is approached by a attractive young lady in Asgard. And she's like, oh, Heimdall, it's just me. Uh, do you not recognize Neri, handmaiden to Fricka, queen of Asgard? And then Heimdall says, aye, but you could also be that rogue son of Odin and Loki, who by magic can even transform himself into a lovely maiden like yourself. And so this Loki's ability to become a woman would, of course, be a major factor in the Loki TV show they just did and in Loki comics of the early 2000s. And uh, this is the first time we find out that he is gender fluid, as they would say today. So then, but in this case, <laughs> although, although of course that was that was established in the that was established in the Eddas uh, that this is all taken from that you know uh, Loki was you know would change genders based on what he was doing, going all the way back to a thousand years ago, ahead of his time. So then she's like, "No, it really is just me. It's just some chick. I'm not Loki." And he's like, "Oh, okay, never mind. There's Loki over there. Okay, you can go." But so then. We've had cut to, I got to say, this is one of the worst Marvel comics we have read. And it is the only Marvel comic we've read <laughs> in which they begin with a story that just peters out on page five. And then they have to go in a radically different direction by page six. So first we have a very familiar story for the first five pages of this comic, where once again, we've had a gangster who's been shot and needs a doctor to fix him up. And then once again, the gangster clutching his gut and the two gunsels with their guns go to Dr. Blake's office. In this case, he's like, well, given that I just dealt with this, I know how to take care of this problem. So then he's like, look over there, what's that? And then turns into Thor. And then he tapes <laughs> all three gangsters to a gurney, straps it to his hammer and just throws them all the way over to the police station. It looks sort of like a police station slash prison. Um, and it <laughs> looks lands, like a dungeon. It, <laughs> it says, look, Thor's hammer delivering the jewel robbers who got away. Why are, but why are they strapped to an operating table? It's a long story, Mr. Gulp. Let's call it Operation Thor. And then we even have like the classic like panel where Jane is talking about Thor and Don Blake is thinking to himself about little does she suspect. And then the whole thing wraps up on page five. And then suddenly on page six, whoa, Nelly. Okay. So it says a week later at a Norwegian seaport, <laughs> someone says, thanks, Thor, for agreeing to provide the special effects we need in this Viking picture. And then Thor says, since the proceeds for my contribution will go to various charities, I'm glad to help out. So now Thor, for charity, is doing the is playing himself in a Viking picture, fighting against they seem to have a very impressive looking for a 1960s sword and sandal epic giant dragon attacking a Viking ship, which he then defeats. Oh, yeah, that, that, that is that 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 is a very impressive uh, animatronic uh, dragon <laughs> for 1962 or whatever. 
Then he, of course, taps his hammer two times. He creates a thunderstorm for them. They're very happy. Cut to Loki. He is still chained up. Loki figures out, oh, he's going to throw his hammer. I can attract his hammer to my chains, shatter my chains. Uh, Thor then, for the first time, does something we haven't seen him do before. He appeals to Odin. He's like, hey, I think Loki stole my hammer. And Odin says, let me bring you to Asgard. We haven't actually seen Thor set foot in Asgard yet in this series. Now Thor is in Asgard. Odin's like, yep, sounds like Loki stole your hammer. Try to get it back from him. We see Thor is walking along through Asgard when a bunch of trees attack him. They establish that when he's in Asgard, that the 30, the 60 second rule does not uh, apply. That that only applies yes. on Earth, not in Asgard. Yes. So then he creates a new hammer out of wood to fight the trees. He then is attacked by giant dragons. He this time makes a new hammer out of stone to fight the dragons. Then he realizes he's actually made the new hammer out of Uru. So he is able to, with just his fingers, chisel Uru into a hammer, which is pretty impressive. But then his new Uru hammer is quickly attracted to his old Uru hammer, and he's able to get it back. Loki is then caught again by Odin, along with Heimdall and Fricka. So then they tell Thor, return again to Earth, my son, and fear not. We shall find a better way to imprison the sinister Loki. And Thor is like, "Uh, I hope so, father, for if Loki ever really breaks free, all the hammers in the world may not stop him. And then once again, for the second time in the issue, we cut back to Jane talking about, well, Jane isn't talking about Thor this time. It's someone is saying, gosh, Doc, take it easy. You could hurt a guy with that rubber hammer. And she says, don't worry, Mr. Jones. Dr. Blake is very experienced in using a mallet. And Don Blake is just thinking to himself, Jane, honey, you don't know the half of it. The end. What a crazy story. This is not the they hammer. Just... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. They just... They get they just run they're they're doing a story that they forget that they just did. Then it peters out. It's dealt with very quickly. The only significant thing in this issue is that we get Thor and Asgard for the first time. A generally terrible issue, perfectly fine <laughs> synod, but just a total mess. Yeah, and I, I do wonder how this plot happened. You know, it's I I, I you know, I get the impression the so-called Marvel method, as they call it, uh, was, you know, varied from artist to artist. So, yeah. you know, Stan, when dealing with Ditko or Kirby, I think he had a lot of faith in those two to be able to have an idea, throw out something that might be as short as maybe a paragraph or two describing a story and have them come back with something really nice that he could script. For other artists, I presume that he didn't have quite that much faith. And so I don't know how much of this mess of a story, as you're describing it here, would be from Sinat and how much would be from Lee. And I, I just don't know. But uh, it's one of the things that I tend to think about when these things come up. Yeah, you do have to wonder that. Oh, and one thing I do like about this issue is that Thor does use a little bit of cleverness. It always bugs me in these issues that he never uses any cleverness. But once he figures out what's going on, he does sort of say, I'll wager that's how I lost my hammer. Somehow Loki must have magnetized it and it was drawn irresistibly towards Asgard, even as the stone mallet I just fashioned is being attracted to the same spot. I was bright. There's my magic hammer. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but at least Thor is thinking a little bit. And I always like it when Thor gets to put a little thought into things. Yes. So that's nice. All right. So meanwhile, the next book in this month that we're talking about is one that Matt and I have been 
going back and forth on how much we're going to be covering as we go forward in this. I was leaning towards just including it monthly as part of the Marvel Universe. Matt, I think, was leaning the other direction, and I could be persuaded either way. But this is Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, a World War II-era book. On the cover, we see Sergeant Fury uh, with all the Howling Commandos behind him. Fury is saying, keep moving, you lunkheads. Nobody lives forever, so get the let out and follow me. We got us a war to win. There's a little caption that says, think you've read war stories before? Mister, wait till you see what's in store for you here. It's only the greatest. And at the bottom, it says seven against the Nazis. Another big one from the talented team that brings you the famous Fantastic Four. Now, one story that I have heard about this, and I do not remember where I heard this. It's probably in, you know, I imagine some of the things that I've heard about legends of these things probably came from books like, you know, Origins of Marvel Comics and stuff like that that came out in the 70s or from, you know, interviews and like Alter Ego or something like that. But uh, so I don't know what the source is of this. I'm sure that it's one of those sorts of things. But uh, that that Stanley told a story at one point years later about how, yeah, so we had come up with this Marvel method that just seemed like it was magic and it was just really doing these great things. And I decided that we should challenge ourselves and just see, is this really what's doing things for us? So I went ahead and came up with this war book with just the silliest name. And I said, okay, if we can do something called Sergeant Fury and the Howlin' Commandos and have it not be a superhero story, but do it using this Marvel method we've been doing. And if that can be a hit, then that means that that's really what's, you know, what's doing it. Or something to that effect. That's my terrible Stanley impression, by the way. So, um, yes, uh, yes, that it's my Stanley impression or yes, that it's terrible. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I think the answer would just be yes. <laughs> so, yes. Anyway, so uh, I sometimes, I've done a better Stanley at times. I was actually quite disappointed in myself there. So, you know, once again, that's one of those things that sounds like a story Stan told years later. Lord only knows if it has any basis in truth. But um, anyway, that's out there that I've heard. Yeah. So do you want me to uh, run through this one or do you want to do it? I just said Thor. So why don't you, why don't you do this? We should, we should do it quickly. Yes. But we should, uh, we should do it. I, I've got to say before we start. So once again, this is a book that Stanley is fully committed to because it is not scripted by Larry Lieber or Robert Bernstein. He is, we don't know how much he's plotting it, but he's scripting it himself. So we've got Jack Kirby back on the art. Jack Kirby has not done a full length book. Jack has only been doing Fantastic Four full length now for several months. Now we have him back on another full-length book, inked by Dick Ayers again, lettered by Artie Simak. I feel like, I I gotta feel like, first of all, when you look at these opening pages, is it just me or does Sergeant Fury look very off-model? Yeah. Obviously, this is the first time he's ever appeared. Sergeant Fury looks kind of like a beast. He looks very bestial. And really, Dum Dum Dugan looks pretty bestial, too. These are both sort of, these are both sort of just, just, subhuman almost <laughs> creatures i find them to be very disturbing yeah yeah uh certainly uh sergeant fury will look quite different uh in later appearances he has the very short military hair here that will uh you know the high and tight sort of uh, a look that will kind of go away and um yeah but anyway we are introduced to everybody here in the first couple of pages and this is very clearly supposed to be a cross-section of everybody in america all of the different factions 
factions that might, you know, you might assume wouldn't get along, might be fighting with each other, but they're all coming together to fight the Nazis. So you've got, uh, you know, your blue collar Nick Fury, who's uh, just the, the down and dirty, gritty sergeant. Junior Juniper, who doesn't really have much of a character and there are reasons for that. We'll find out in a few months. <laughs> Jonathan Junior Juniper is fresh out of the Ivy League, so he is also representing a, okay. a part of right. the Marvel, uh, representing a part of the world. Yes, yes. So he's he's the uh, Ivy League kid coming in um, and doing just as you know just as good work as everybody else. Uh, we've got Rebel Ralston, a guy from Kentucky. Although later, the way his uh, Southern drawl is done really seems more like uh, Savannah or Charleston to me. But they establish right from the beginning he's a. Uh, you know, Southern Kentucky gentleman who uh, I think is actually wearing a uh, Confederate uh, hat that belonged to a an ancestor of his, if I recall correctly. That they uh, establish that later. Dum Dum Dugan is the Irish strongman. Gabe Jones. Now, this is interesting because in World War II. The army was not yet integrated. You had black soldiers, but they were in their own segregated units. Uh, but they decided for this that, you know what, if we're putting this together with a cross section of America and we're going to show all these people who, you know, can get along because, you know, America has a job to do, uh, you know, we're going to have a black man in here. Now, granted, he's a jazz trumpet player. <laughs> Just like. Uh, yeah, well, there's that. Um, you've then got Izzy Cohen, who is the first, you know, coded as Jewish character that I am aware of in here. You know, later they'll sort of uh, imply and then eventually, decades later, canonize that Ben Grimm is Jewish. But, uh, you know, Izzy Cohen from Brooklyn, that's pretty, pretty clear. And then the movie star, uh, Dean, you know, Dean Martin. He's not actually Dean Martin, but he's clearly supposed to be Dean Martin, who, of course, wouldn't have been fighting in World War II. He was, yeah, but one way or the other. I think Dean Martin, I've just been listening to you, must remember this. I think he was drafted in uh, was fighting he? in World War II. Well, OK, yeah. but he wasn't he wasn't a movie star yet, right? No, he was not. He was just a nightclub singer. Right, right, right. OK, so uh, but one way or the other, you know, it's a, there there were a lot of famous American stars who did fight in World War II, uh, actually, you know, not just in, uh, you know, back offices somewhere or doing entertainment stuff, but actually fighting. And so this is, he's representing them. So they, they very consciously put together this cross-section of every different strata of American society all coming together to um, be badass Nazi fighters. No, so you pointed out that we've got Gabe Jones used to blow the sweetest trumpet this side of Carnegie Hall, and he is the black soldier, even though there wouldn't be a black soldier fighting with white soldiers in World War II. But on this first page, in the original issue that I'm looking at, he's white. He has been colored white, the exact same skin color as everybody else, on this first two-page section. So Gabe is on the cover, white. Then he's on this opening two-page spread, white. And then suddenly you get to the bottom of page four and he is black or rather that bizarre sort of gray that they were covering. They were coloring black people at the time. So it took a while to get their courage up to make him black here. <laughs> they didn't do it at first in this comic. And then only gradually did he become black. And, and of course, back in those days, you know, you, you know, kind of you, you, you hear a lot these days about, you know, uh, media companies making all of these uh, sort of tortured decisions about 
about how to appease the Chinese media market when you're doing entertainment for American audiences because there's a lot of money in China. This was basically the same thing back then, but it was appeasing the Southern market. And so, you know, they kind of wanted to do this thing where they have this black soldier here. But yeah, I think they were afraid about putting him on the cover on this. You know, <laughs> they're like, well, no, but then we won't get any sales from, you know, Georgia, Mississippi, you know, whatever. <clears throat> um, and there, there's been a lot of speculation back and forth that I've seen in some online communities that I'm part of about how much of that gray coloring that they do on uh, black characters has to do with uh, making sure that things will reproduce well and how much was, uh, let's not make it too obvious that they're black or else we won't have, well, or else we'll lose sales in the South. Right. On the cover, he's white. Then there's a picture of all them fighting and he's white. And then there's a picture of all of them facing the camera and being introduced and he's white. And then it's only before we get to page four of the proper story that he's suddenly back at the bottom of the page. Yeah. Yeah. So and then he's back for the rest of the issue. So and once again, who knows how much of that was trying to appease the southern market and how much of that was, uh, you know, or maybe people in the production department just being like, this can't possibly be the right color. Right. This is (laughs) this is clearly. Yeah, let's fix this. Right. Like, Like that famous episode of Star Trek with the green dancer. He's gray in all of them on on the Marvel Unlimited version. All right, so uh, I'm just going to try to go through this pretty quickly. We see someone from the French underground getting killed, and there's one person left who knows some kind of secret information about D-Day, and that now the Howlers are going to be sent to rescue this person so that he can't have the information tortured out of him. We then see scenes of the Howlers training, and uh, one thing I notice about this is this does not look like... Jack Kirby superhero art. I'm guessing that he's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I'm doing all these other sorts of comics besides superheroes, so I'm going to do this to look more like, you know, an EC war book. So on the top of page five, there is a picture of Junior Juniper that looks like he's drawn by Jack Davis. In an, yeah. in an EC war comic. And uh, so it's interesting. They're, they're a, he's able to flex some different muscles here uh, artistically than he usually does. So we see uh, all sorts of macho badassery that these guys are able to do, including like throwing a grenade at a Nazi plane while they're parachuting into something and blowing up the, the, the plane. They make it into this town in France, fighting some Nazis. They're trying to get to this guy who they need to get out. They do... You know, one of the things that's odd about how they handle war books in the strictest days of the Comics Code Authority, because you weren't able to show anybody being killed. But in war, that's the whole point. So you have a lot of stuff that just happens off panel, like Sarge shooting his machine gun into a tank and then throwing a a grenade in after it. You don't see (laughs) people dying, but clearly people are dying here. So, well, but they make it even when they blow up the plane, they make it clear that the people got out and parachuted. Later, Dino is impersonating a Nazi officer and he goes up to a bunch of Nazis and it's like, oh, let me inspect that gun. And he takes the gun and suddenly turns it and mows down the Nazis with machine gun fire. But then it says in the description, it says, suddenly, unexpectedly, totally without warning, the high Nazi officer wheels around with a barking submachine gun and trains it in the direction of the Nazi troops themselves. But then it says, scattering them like 10 pins as they run for cover in bewildered panic. Right. So it's like, no, no, no. He's not just mowing down a bunch of Nazis here. They're they're running for cover. 
Right. And so, yeah, they're, they're trying to walk this fine line with the Comics Code Authority, uh, and that can lead to some odd and awkward things. But, you know, they, they try to make it, you know, okay, this is war, people are being killed, but it's like, we got to give a little bit of, uh, a little bit of wiggle room there for the code to, uh, to let us buy with this. At one point, Sarge, he's like injured and... They don't make it clear how he's injured. It's I, seemingly when he blows up the tank with the grenade, right. they then talk about how he's injured after that, but they never show his injury or make it clear how he's injured. Right, but then they're having to drag him along on some stuff. But uh, anyway, one way or the other, in the end, they're able to take out the Nazis who are running, who are, you know, uh, in charge of this town. They are able to rescue the guy who was going to you know, who had the information that uh, they were going to torture him to get. Uh, they are all about to be executed, it seems. And then Sarge comes back and he's like, oh, he's not dead. And he's able to rescue everybody uh, right before they're about to be executed. Um, they all shout Wahoo because that's what they do. And um, they've won and they go back. So, you know, it's, it, I mean, there, there's a lot of more detail we could go into there, but we're we're trying to uh, oh, and then <laughs> to do that. But then we also have weapons. And of then war. I see yes on the bottom, and then on the bottom of page 21 in the last panel of the issue, Gabe is white again in the issue. I'm ah, at, interesting. Yeah, once again, who knows how much was what in this one? But um, yeah, here he is once again gray. He, he looks like um, Hershey's chocolate milk powder is basically sort of the color, <laughs> right. the color they're making him here. And then they have this uh, weapons of war uh, feature that is in here where they've got close up drawings of uh, the you know sidearms that were most common among various uh, nations, armies. So they have ones from France, Japan, Russia, Germany, the British Navy and Austria uh, with all sorts of information. And they imply that there's going to be more of this coming about. And I think they do do this for a few months. Uh, it eventually drops away. But um, And once again, Kirby did serve on the battlefield in World War II. Stan also served in World War II, but he was doing, you know, I think, writing for the Army, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, right. you know, Jack was out there with a gun on the field. And so, uh, you know, he certainly has real-world um, experience with what these guns are going to look like. Yeah, and and I think he was willing to do some actual research for this issue, and I think he figured if I'm going to do the research, I might as well get a good chance to draw each of these guns. So let's go ahead and do a Weapons of War page, which is fun. Yeah, and, you know, so uh, this is – so Sergeant Fury seems like it's completely unrelated to what's going on in the rest of the Marvel Universe at the moment. Uh, but, of course, it will be very tightly bound up into the Marvel superhero universe as we go forward, as we – then later see Sergeant Fury in current day, being early 60s, is going to show up and turn into basically a secret agent. They're going to found S.H.I.E.L.D. and all sorts of stuff. So, and Dum Dum Dugan and all these characters will, you know, and villains from uh, Sergeant Fury will end up showing up in the regular Marvel Universe. So this is going to be retroactively bound up into the Marvel continuity that we all know and love. Yeah, and Fury Fury will be the only hero to star in two different comics at the same time yeah. for the most of the sixties, where he is going to be starring in Sergeant Fury and Italian Commandos set in World War II, and he's going to be starring in Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, set in modern day. 
And uh, so he is going to about to become a very major character. Yes. But so I think this first issue is pretty great. I think it is an exciting rescue of the French underground type of story. It really feels like a John Sturges film. Our father just visited us and I watched The Great Escape with him, which uh. is a great father-son movie to watch. And it feels like The Great Escape. It feels, you know, yeah. it's gorgeous, curvy art. It's so nice to have him back. Nice airs inking. There is definitely two tiers these days of the book Stan is fully committed to and the book Stan isn't. And this feels like a book Stan is fully committed to. And it, I think it's really nice. And it's nice to have a black character although he is sometimes white and when he's not white, he's gray, but it's nice to have him. And I think it's, this is a nice addition to the Marvel universe, even though we may not keep talking about it every month. Yeah. Well, we'll, 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 like I said, that's still an open-ended question here. It might be that we sort of like, hey, is there anything important going on in Sergeant Fury this month? We'll we'll see going forward. But certainly, as I've been doing my own read through, I have been reading Sergeant Fury each month with the rest of the other character with the rest of the other books that come out that month. Okay, so good. We've introduced uh, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. We're now going to move on to Strange Tales, where once again we made one of those statements about, well, that's the last time we're going to see that. Uh, once again, that we still never learn on that and we uh have been proven wrong on this issue uh in that and jack kirby is back Jack Kirby is back on Strange Tales. So we've got Strange Tales number 108. It says the human torch meets the painter of a thousand perils. A painter is painting the Fantastic Four attacking human torch. The Sue is saying, get him thing. We must destroy the torch. The painter is saying, only I can make the Fantastic Four turn against the human torch. And then we've got this big shocker when we open the book and we find out that, that Jack Kirby is back. Jack Kirby, who I had remembered as being gone off this book forever once he disappeared, is back. We've got Pot by Stan Lee, script by Robert Bernstein, art by Jack Kirby, inking Dick Ayers, and Kirby is back and he's doing great work. This is this is a beautiful Kirby issue. It is crazy. This is classic nut job uh, <laughs> Kirby Human Torch. Now, Kirby does not attempt to restore things back to the status quo he left. He does not attempt to restore the Torch's secret identity. He is willing to admit that that is gone forever. Uh, I think we can safely say that is something that will never return. But so then we say, uh, we show the Human Torch catching some thieves by melting the road. We then see something that Kirby loves to draw. There is a masquerade ball. And so Kirby gets to draw a bunch of people in really wild costumes at a masquerade ball and a really beautiful panel at the bottom of page two. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Some, th some thieves are stealing it, stealing from it. And up there is Johnny just happens to be there. He captures the thieves and he captures them. He's like, oh, you know, I'm bored fighting crime. Let me invent a new way to do it. So he says, look who's talking about fire. All I have to do is puff a few times. And gigantic smoke rings rise out of Johnny. And they're so big and tough and strong smoke rings that they encircle them. They go, smoke rings, they're encircling us like lassos. I I, I can't breathe. I can't see. The smoke's overcoming me. Oh. So, so he defeats them with smoke so rings. So this is once again one of those things where um, the creators sometimes just think of Johnny as basically being the Green Lantern, but he's <laughs> yes. got flaming uh, energy stuff that he works with rather than emerald green stuff. So then we cut to a mobster named Chief Scar Tobin, and he's like, hey, who's there at the door? Why, it's Wilhelm Van Vile, the counterfeiter, the torch <laughs> caught, but who busted out of jail last week. And Wilhelm Van Vile now has uh, a really strange-looking paint palette and is 
painting on the wall a paints a giant gorilla with three heads and six arms who then comes to life and attacks everybody and then he paints other stuff and he paints a fine carpet so they can all fly away and they're like uh where to get the paints so that can come to life and he's like well as you recall i was caught counterfeiting and i was a very lazy counterfeiter i would paint a picture of abraham lincoln that lacked his sideburns and <laughs> then then he remembers one time I was at a bookstore where a teenage kid held a part-time job. Well, lo and behold, the teenage kid is Johnny. So we have never known Johnny to work in a bookstore before in this comic or in any comic. But it turns out that at some point in the past, Johnny worked in a bookstore and caught this guy trying to pass one of his phony bills and then allowed himself to be taken prisoner so that he could go back and torch all the phony bills and then arrest everybody. And this guy went to prison. Van Vile went to prison, but then he dug his way out of prison and found a strange underground cavern with a mural showing aliens visiting the Earth. He finds the, that this is true, that aliens did visit the Earth, that they brought paints with them that can make anything come to life. He then uses the paints to escape. Then he goes to work for the gangsters. So now we're caught up to the present day. Johnny is shopping for hi-fi equipment in a stereo store. When he hears that there's more crime going on, he flies over to confront them. Then giant fire hydrants shoot out of the ground and douses flame. He then goes after them again, and this time a tidal wave of sand attacks him. This is the painter making all these things come to life. He then, the painter then paints the Fantastic Four attacking him. The Fantastic Four throw a grenade at him and seemingly kill him. And the bad guys are all happy, but then, whoops, here comes Johnny. He burns up all the paints. He burns up the canvas. He then explains that I figured out it was you because, once again, you were doing a crappy job with your painting. <laughs> the giant hydrants you created had no nozzles. Your beach lacked litter baskets. And the Fantastic Four had no number four on their costumes, all as a result of your carelessness, fan file. And so then you would think, again... And I, I blame Robert Bernstein for this. You would think that then they would go like, oh, so I figured out it was you who was behind this. So I went to your known hideout. I went to your known lair. But no, instead, instead he says, oh, I figured out it was you. So Johnny's being clever. He's figuring it out. That's good. And so once he figures out it's Van Vile, he says, so I combed 50 square miles of the area till I found your hideout, your crooked buddies and your paints, which like your evil plans are now going up in smoke forever. And it's like, well, you didn't really need to figure out who he was if you were willing to comb 50 square miles <laughs> looking for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, th this is a, I mean, this has some wonderful imaginative Kirby uh, creatures and parties and action and stuff here, but it also does, uh, you know, have some of that, uh, you know, Kirby on autopilot kind of feel to it you know it's not quite an alien invasion or um, <laughs> you know see i disagree yeah. i don't think there's anything autopilot about this story i think this is a wonderfully imaginative villain and i love his i love his weakness i love his weaknesses that he's lazy about details and that that's what gets him caught but i think he just he looks fantastic he's got he no beret this time but he does have <laughs> sort of a frenchish hat there's still something a little french about his hat and his ascot sort of thing that he's wearing and he uh i think he is great i would say there's nothing autopilot about this issue i love it all right that's fair and so, yeah certainly he has a remarkable mustache <laughs> 
yes. I was going to say magnificent, but it's no, it's not magnificent. It's something else. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So uh, once again, nice little surprise to uh, get Kirby back on that book. And uh, yeah, that one was fun. So yes. meanwhile, we're going to move on to Tales of Suspense, uh, our next Iron Man story. Will Iron Man meet his doom when he invades the stronghold of Doctor Strange? Now, this is not the Doctor Strange we have all come to know and love. This is a guy who I don't know if we ever hear of again. <laughs> but, no, he never appears again. Yeah. So, uh, and he says, no matter how powerful you are, Iron Man, you're helpless without your life-giving electricity. The same electricity which I am shutting off now. And we see him crumpling weakly while various equipment is falling down on top of him. And it says, Doctor Strange, the most dangerous foe ever to challenge Iron Man's might. He is going to be pretty darn forgettable. But we do see that once again, Jack Kirby is drawing this issue. Yes, and this time it's not heck inking, it's Dick Ayer's inking, so we have an entirely heckless issue. I had forgotten how much work Kirby did on Iron Man. I thought yep. he was not doing any work on Iron Man, and here he is, back, back, powering through it. So, Pot Stanley, script R. Burns, art Jack Kirby, inking Dick Ayer's. And it is a gorgeous Kirby issue. He is, I think he does much better under Ayer's than under Heck. And I think it is a nice looking issue. Uh, I yes, I, I I will disagree with you. I like uh, I liked Heck. In- I, I have I have recently as we're going back and rereading these things, I realized that I usually don't like Dick Ayer's inks. Later, when he takes over Sergeant Fury as the penciler, uh, I really like the work that he does uh, as penciler on Sergeant Fury. But as an inker, I'm just not a big fan of his. And uh, I really kind of liked the Kirby inked by Heck, where that kept a little bit of the the continuity art wise but we're going to be getting back to that in a little bit so okay yeah. no i i like airs a lot i i think airs and kirby are a great combo but uh you prefer the heck uh well yeah i mean it's as i said you know airs sometimes his inks can look like he's doing it with a big mop and yeah, i agree i you know you can pull that some people can pull that off in a way that looks good i just don't it just doesn't do it for me you know, so yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I, if I see that Ayers is inking a book, I'm like, eh, you know, all right, that's fine. And Tony Starkle seems to look significantly different here. Uh, uh, Jack Kirby has a different take on his face, I feel. Yeah. Um, and his mustache and, and his hair uh, just all looks a little bit different. So once again, we're seeing him at, you know, a big charity ball. And there he is romancing uh, some starlet. And he is trying to put her off because, of course, he's got this steel thing under his chest, which you would think that with her snuggling up against him in that car there that she would be like, you know, clang 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 what's this <laughs> but right. no, never notices so then he is trying to uh beg off from a relationship by talking about how important he is in all these other areas so he's talking about being a munitions manufacturer doing scientific research on medical problems which is uh not something we really hear much about going forward There's some kind of space engineering stuff and so he's you know now it's interesting that of these various amazing technical innovations he talks about doing on page three not once does he mention transistors. So I think they're starting to figure out that people, or at least Robert Bernstein is starting to figure out, oh, people are getting a little tired of the transistors. Well, So he is inventing all of these amazing things. Now, transistors will be back before we get to the end of this issue. But they managed to get through a whole page of amazing inventions he does without any transistors being mentioned. Uh, did they mention magnets? 
Oh, wow. No magnets, no or, magnets transistors. or transistors. It's amazing. Um, so, But then he reminisces to himself about all the stuff he does as Iron Man and how much time it takes up and how dangerous it is uh, and that he needs to charge up his chest plate on a regular basis in order to keep his heart beating. So he's going through that in his own head as to why, you know, the real or additional reasons why he can't have a relationship with this woman. So then he's going to do a uh, charity thing at a hospital for orphans, but he has to change into his Iron Man outfit before he gets there. So he just pulls his car over on the side of a road and he's changing into his Iron Man suit just by the side of the road there somewhere like that's a little bit weird he then goes and is doing all this stuff oh magnets here we go we got magnets again here on the bottom of page five so and well and he flies for the first time he says first i'll soar into the air with help of okay here we have transistors first i'll soar into the air with the help of my transistor powered jets and so then he flies up in the air and says now i'll use magnets to draw several cars towards me and then he juggles them yeah but th- so this, this isn't the fir- this isn't the first time he has flown like that but they, they sort of flirt with it and turn to go back and forth on whether it's actually flying or not. But they've talked about his air pressure jets in the past uh, being able yes, to... Yes, it was more like a boost before, yes. and now yes. he is much more clearly flying than he ever has before, and uh, and juggling cars with magnets. So, you know, so they managed to make it through a couple of pages, but then at the bottom <laughs> of page five, we have both transistors and magnets. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, come on, they're only human. So, uh, anyway, so he's uh, juggling cars using magnetism, and then he should shows how he can be shot with a cannonball and just catch it and then he crushes the cannonball uh so then meanwhile there is somebody in a prison radio repair lab and this is so-called dr strange and he is some crook who has gotten his way through good behavior into working in the electron an electronics lab they have at the uh, prison and so now he uses that to get himself out of prison, fakes a fainting spell, and then has a gizmo he's put together that then gets him out. He uses his contraption in prison. He uses a contraption to take control of Iron Man and have Iron Man then under his control come break into the prison and break him out of prison and fly off. Yes, so he was using Iron Man as the tool of his escape. And uh, I actually really like the picture on page nine uh, panel one, two, three, four, five as uh, Iron Man is tearing down the outside wall of the prison and you see all the prisoners cells uh, that were behind the wall and all the prisoners who can now jump out and uh, and get free. Yeah, so Iron Man is much more clearly flying here, as you mentioned. Uh, and so he helps Doctor Strange escape, hanging onto his back there. Then Iron Man you know, recovers from all of this, realizes that he has been turned into an instrument of evil and he has the whole, like, his whole his fists are in front of him as he's like, if it's the last thing I'll ever do. I'll recapture him. I must redeem myself. And uh, everyone is like, man, poor Iron Man. He's been totally fooled by this guy and feels terrible. Then it turns out that Doctor Strange is trying to be a great and powerful person, basically to impress his daughter. And his daughter's like, um, can you just be a dad? (laughs) He's like, no! I must have this whole coterie of uh, international thugs and supervillains, thugs and uh, dictators and scientists 
around me and we will uh, take over the world. Now I will introduce you to my accomplices, the most cunning scientist and power man, military man on earth. And then she runs off and he's like, what's wrong with your daughter, doctor? She avoids us like the plague. And he's like, oh, she'll straighten out. But we have important things to do, gentlemen, for tonight we issue our challenge to the whole world. Yes. And uh, meanwhile, she's like, um, could you just be my dad? He's like, LOL. Yeah. He's like, LOL, no. So uh, he then apparently explodes a 200 megaton bomb in outer space to show his uh, power. And then so we see, uh, you know, the back of presumably Kennedy's head uh, watching this, his demands being made on the TV. And we see Khrushchev from the front. They're talking about some kind of S bombs. We've got gamma bombs and H bombs and S bombs and, you know, who knows what else. Fortunately, no F bombs in this case. <laughs> anyway, so then he has, has his demands that everybody must surrender to me within 24 hours or else I'll kill you all. And uh, then Iron Man has himself shot out of a torpedo tube in a nuclear submarine to attack the Doctor Strange's island. So he's able to just uh, excavate a tunnel up under the hideout and comes on into the hideout. And Doctor Strange is able to, looks like, overload the suit, I believe, uh, with an electric shock. So the the daughter of Doctor Strange, who wants no part of any of this foolishness, uh, throws Iron Man a light, a flashlight, so that he can just bust out the D batteries <laughs> and recharge himself somehow, just using these uh, the, the batteries from the flashlight. And and so he's able to defeat Doctor Strange and he's able to comfort Doctor Strange's daughter, who once again just wanted him to be a dad. But then Doctor Strange gets away. So Doctor Strange escapes and says, your father has vanished, Carla. He probably took precautions to escape if his incredible scheme failed. But how can I thank you enough for what you did? And she says, by finding my father someday before he can do even more harm to mankind. But he was never seen again because <laughs> Marvel introduced a hero named Doctor Strange and they didn't want to confuse things by bringing this Doctor Strange back. Yeah. So he gets away scot-free and is never caught and is never brought to justice for his crimes. And the daughter never gets to find closure with her dad. Yes. Although, you know, they, with other characters of that nature, they have just, you know, come up with different names for them. I mean, Dr. Druid, wasn't he originally called Dr. Doom? Or is it? No, he was Dr. Droom. But I guess that was too close to Dr. Doom. So they brought him back and they just called him Dr. Druid. You know, so they, they could have done something right. like that. But, you know, he's not worth it, though. Yeah, they totally could have renamed him. But I should say it's bizarre on page 12. Now, on the cover of the issue, they're like, Iron Man, you know, no matter how powerful you are, Iron Man, you're helpless without your life giving electricity, the same electricity which I'm shutting off now. And that makes so much more sense that he's like, I want to stop Iron Man. I will shut down all the electricity in order to stop Iron Man. In the actual comic, it's Iron Man who wants to sacrifice his own life by shutting off all electricity, even though it will affect him too. And it's Iron Man who knocks out all the power. And then it doesn't seem to have any negative effect on Doctor Strange. It only affects Iron Man. So Iron Man has sacrificed himself for nothing. It's a really bizarre bit of scripting from Robert Burns here. And whoever scripted the cover seems to have been someone else who actually made the story make sense. <laughs> and they had the bad guy attacking Iron Man instead of Iron Man attacking himself. Right. Yeah. I'm not a big Heck fan. You're a bigger Heck fan than I am. I thought it was nice to have a Heckless issue. I thought it was nice to have a Kirby issue. I don't think Doctor Strange is so terrible. I always like how 
Lee or whoever, you know, by the time you get to issues like this, you credit it to Lee or Bernstein or Kirby. But I always like daddy issues. I like <laughs> it when these comics have some daddy issues involved. I like it when they go ahead and have this is similar to the next issue. We'll be looking at the Ant-Man issue where once again, we have the villain is really just doing it all to impress a family member. And I think that I like this. I like the complex familial relationships that are affecting Dr. Strange here. I guess I was just thinking that, uh, you know, a few years from now when Hydra is introduced, the very first Hydra storyline has this exact same dynamic and, uh, but it, you know, plays out over multiple issues and feels a little bit more realized. So oh, yeah. this just feels a little bit like, I guess, a dry run for that. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're just down to one more issue here. Tales to Astonish. Once again, there are several things in this issue that we were wrong about. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> Tales to Astonish. Astonish. Is this the end of the Ant-Man, or sorry, is this the end of Ant-Man? And uh, we see Ant-Man saying, what's happening to me? Of course, there's a the little matchbook behind him because you got to have something tiny to show the, you know, scale that we're dealing with here. Uh, the Mad Master of Time had the one power which even Ant-Man was helpless against, the power of old age. Don't miss this startling, dramatic Ant-Man saga. And then it's actually got panels on the cover, which is not a common thing. And at the bottom, it says, I'm growing older. Older, older in three different panels where he's just turning into a more wrinkled and decrepit old man. Okay, so quickly we see Ant-Man going along. So even though Kirby is not back on this book, we've sort of returned to the old status quo where we have Ant-Man running along and he's saying, I can't wait to get back to my lab to become normal size again. Yeah. And so we're sort of back to this Kirby status quo of Ant-Man not being able to change shape unless he goes back to his lab. And then a telegram boy drops a telegram to let us know that this was 1963, and which feels more like 1923 almost with the telegram boy dropping his telegram. That causes people to notice Ant-Man is there. He interacts with the public a little bit. We then cut to Professor Elias Weems. He is so happy that his grandson is going to come visit and he'll go to show up what a good scientist he is. But before the grandson can come, he is fired for mandatory retirement for being too old from his scientist job. Of course, his reaction is to go, that's it. I shall make society pay for the wrong they've done me, and I'll use their own weapon. Age, it will be a poetic revenge. They said I was too old. Well, I shall invent a machine that will make others too old. A machine to age all living creatures. So he invents the machine. He makes a tree much older. He then goes to the zoo where Henry Pym happens to be. He makes the elephants much older and then makes them younger again. He then uses it on a woman, and it just so happens the guys just said, hey guys, dig that luscious chick. And he then <laughs> makes her older, the very worst thing that could ever happen to a woman and then a guy says gorgeous chick who are you trying to kid someone says that dame could pass for my mother and the guy who had called her a gorgeous chick sorry the guy who had called her a luscious chick says but but she i i then thankfully weems restores her to her rightful age the greatest tragedy that could ever happen doesn't actually befall her he then writes writes a letter to the cops calling himself the time master so then we have ant-man doing something that i said he would never do again he yep. shoots himself across town out of his little antipult out of his little cannon and then lands in a pile of ants which it would make sense if kirby came back to this book like he came back to torch and then this happened again but no this is without kirby coming back this is heck yeah Are you falling back on kirby's old uh bizarre storytelling device so ant-man shoots himself across town he's dealing with the cops he then he 
engages in some good detective work. He decides to check in all the labs around town and ask if they had any bitter employees who were fired recently. And they go, uh, yeah, I fired this guy for being too old. And he was super bitter about it. And Ant-Man says, fired because of his age. And now he threatens to age his fellow men. This could be the lead I'm after. And so in this case, it makes much more sense than it did in Human Torch. In this case, he then says, oh, I figured out who the bad guy is and I will go to his home yes. where he is. He makes Ant-Man old, drops him in a bucket, another inconsequential confrontation, seems to think that that will take care of him to put him in a bucket. Apparently, he did not know that Ant-Man does now have the ability to change size even when he is out in the world. He grows big, but he's still old. And then the lamest thing about this issue, this is not an entirely terrible issue, but the one thing that is truly terrible about this issue is Weems is on the roof. He's shooting his ray at everybody. He's making them old. Even his grandson, who has shown up in town, he makes old, didn't mean to do that. He feels bad. Then Ant-Man is there, ready to attack Hesizari of Ants. But before Ant-Man can do anything, the bad guy just accidentally drops his gun. <laughs> and that's how the bad guy is defeated. He just accidentally drops his gun. Now Ant-Man is able to catch the gun with his pile of ants. But then he never has to defeat the bad guy who just drops his gun, frankly, because he's too old. And that's why he should have been fired for being too old, <laughs> because he's so incompetent. He just absolutely flat out drops his gun when he should be holding it. And so then everybody is brought up to age, including the grandson is brought back to his normal age. And then everybody just totally forgives Weems. And he even gets offered his job back. And the boss apologizes. And he says, and I've learned my lesson. Never again will I judge a man's worth solely on the basis of his age. And Ant-Man says, in a way, we've all learned something. We've learned to appreciate our youth and strength and to make the most of them while we can and to better serve humanity. As we've said, I actually really find the art in this uh, in this issue quite charming. I, I am a fan of it. No, it's not bad at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, certainly later when we get on to Hex's stint on Avengers, there are certainly the, much of that is not ideal. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But in these early Ant-Man and Iron Man stories that he does, I very much look forward to seeing the to seeing the art as we go through these things. And he's inking himself, which I think is for the best. Absolutely, yes. Although there are some other inkers who can do well over him. But um, for the most part, he has not done many favors by the stable of inkers that they had at Marvel at the time. But yeah, uh, this is a fun issue. And, uh, you know, I kind of like that it all turned out, oh, well, guess what? He gets redeemed in the end, right? <laughs> but yeah. even though it's like a I, little too pat, but you know, still. I, I find it a little... A little extreme how much he gets redeemed. Yes. Like, you know, everybody basically ends up apologizing to the villain and going, you were right all along, villain. We, You were right to create your aging ray and force us all to age and to force that poor woman to not be luscious for a moment and then be luscious again. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, well, we've never had a villain come out so well at the end of an issue as we have in this issue. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, certainly way too pat. But, you know, still, it's, you know, it's a different ending. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's nice to see something a little bit different. Anyway, yeah, okay, so we've we've reached the end. I think that this will probably fit into one episode, I'm guessing. Yeah, as you said, it's not the most monumentous month that we've had here at Marvel, but we had some some nice stuff, you know, particularly, I think, the introduction of Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos and the Vulture and yes. some of and some of the building blocks of the Spider-Man world that we'll be having going forward. So uh, if nothing else, we have those things and a lot of uh, enjoyable story and art along the way. Yes. The strongest superhero book this month was the first half of Spider-Man number two. Everything else was 
was a little bit on autopilot. But then we've got this huge search and fury issue, which is just great to see Stan and Jack using their full steam powers, you know, almost getting a sense of like, they're like, uh, maybe the super thing is superhero thing is going to peter out. And maybe we should start some non superhero books using our the full strength of our powers. And as it happened, they ended up totally recommitting the superheroes and then the Sergeant Fury book. They both leave the Sergeant Fury book before it is a year old, I think, or before it is 12 issues old, although I forget whether those were monthly or bi-monthly issues. And they both fully recommit to superheroes. Ayers ends up moving over to take over Sergeant Fury and doing a good job. But for now, they are splitting their efforts. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anything else we want to talk about here? Uh, we do have we do have at least one guest episode lined up, and we will uh, hopefully have that in our next episode. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I believe I, so. I think we have two guest episodes coming up very soon. Yes. So we uh, that that is going to be fantastic. We're going to get to greatly expand the world of this podcast uh, coming up very soon. So I think that's the next thing you're going to hear from us, but we'll see. Yes, yes, absolutely. I guess we're ready to say thank you, everybody, for listening, and we look forward to being with you again in a couple of weeks. Great. Okay. Or, yes, we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.